Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Jennifer Michelle Greenberg. She's written a great book called Not Forsaken. She was abused by her church-going father, yet she's still a Christian. In this courageous, compelling book, she reflects on how God brought life and hope in the darkest of situations. It's a great book, and we had a great time talking about it. I give you Jennifer Michelle Greenberg. Jen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. You are um, the author of a book, Not Forsaken, uh, which is uh, about a pretty traumatic experience that is your life story. And w- one of the things that struck me about it when I was reading it is is that you, in the first two chapters, you write it from kind of a third person point of view, right? You you, you tell the story about a girl, uh, you know, a mom, this person, and, and you tell, and then you switch to the first person. My sense was, is, it, did you have to learn that in your own life experience, how to move from like, because I know a lot of traumatized people that like have a tough time engaging their story first person because it's too traumatic. You kind of tell it like it's a movie. Is that what was going on there? I mean, is that why you, you, you tell those first two chapters in, in, in the kind of third person narrator? I found that when I, um, you know, it's funny, I actually wrote it in that way initially. And then just kind of as an exercise, I did write it, you know, from, from my perspective, you know, this happened to me sort of thing. And then I, you know, I kind of compared those two and I realized that I think both from a reader perspective and a writer perspective, it was easier to read um, when it was written third person. Um, And I can't, I can't entirely explain why, but uh, me as the writer with some objectivity. And I think it also is just a little less intense for the reader. So it's not quite as hopefully quite as stressful to read. Yeah, so you, your, your dad, you, you tell the story of this guy who's got real um, issues around his own sexuality and ability to love and be loved, yeah. and yet at the same time is a professor at a Christian university. He's got a PhD in biology. He reads theology all the time. Uh, I mean, this is and so this is the the sordid world you grew up in, right? With this guy who had this sexually kind of abusive tendency or tendency toward this kind of sexualizing of his, even his own children. Yeah. And yet, and, 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 and yet like he was a revered person in religious circles. Right. I mean, was, is, it, is that part of the tension of working all this stuff out in your life? Like dealing with that kind of stuff? Oh, very much so. And um, he, I mean, cause he, he is a very intelligent guy. He's actually a professor of biology and um, so he knew a lot about science, you know, as well as theology. So he was, I mean, he was just very academic. Um, you know, he could, um, he could debate, you know, any, anyone pretty much and, and get his point across. And um, so, so he was, so I kind of lived in this um, strange dichotomy. So we'd go to church on Sunday, you know, and, and we, we, I'd hear sermons about grace and, and love and you know god being 
our father and, um, you know, what that meant. And then we'd come home and the feeling was very different. You know, there was, there was a lack of love. There was a lack of forgiveness. There was no mercy and, and um, very little empathy. And um, so, yeah. And, and this was an evangelical church, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, it was um, OPC. Um, so Orthodox Presbyterians Reformed Church. Um, but yeah, just very, very solid Christian church. And, you know, as, um, as loving and as, um, godly as those people, you know, were, and I truly believe that they were, they had no idea what was going on. And my dad was able to fly under the radar, um, for a very, very long time. Did he teach at a religious school or was it? No, it was a secular university. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's interesting because the OPC, if, if for a lot of my listeners who are not, because my the audience is probably equally religious and irreligious or, or, or sure, non-religious. Sure. I should it's non-religious. Yeah. The OPC, it's a very small Presbyterian denomination that was started in the 30s by a guy named Jay Gresham Machen. He was at 20,000 people when it started. It's about 20,000 people now, but it's it, <laughs> it, it it tends to draw pretty brainy people, right? I mean, yes. it's it's, not, it, yes. it, it, it's it's a very kind of intellectual, uh, doctrinaire sort of, um, it almost, it, I mean, almost defines itself by what it's against or what it's not. I mean, I wonder, like, it, did that play into any of your dad's pathologies, like the culture of the of the of the OPC? Because it, it it can be this kind of place that nurtures resentment and anger and. Well, I it, think. I think- it, um, I think just the nature of academia um, fueled a lot of his pride. He was a person who very much um, prided himself on knowledge. You know, it's like that uh, first, verse, first Corinthians 13, you know, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, um, but I have no love, I'm a noisy gong, right? And so, you know, uh, it was very much uh, if I speak in the tongues of Greek and Hebrew <laughs> or... Um, or evolution, or or whatever it may be, the sciences. Um, you know, I, I can know all these things. I can learn all these things. I can expand my mind. I can out argue anybody. But if you have no love, it it's what is it for? So that was that was his issue, I think, in a big way. And I think that you know, it's funny because I've I've talked to like church friends and people who who knew my family back when and. And they've all said, you know, a similar thing is, you know, I, I knew your dad was antisocial and I always thought your dad was kind of a jerk, but I never knew he would do that, you know? And I think that there's, there's a big misconception. Um, and I don't know if this is just, I don't think this is just among Christian circles. I think this is just in general, like, um, in our culture, but you know, you, you think of, um, a, a domestic abuser, um, you know, someone who beats their kids as being, you know, some drunk in a wife beater shirt. You know, you don't think of the the PhD professor in a suit and tie. You just don't. And and so he was very much able to um, camouflage himself that way. You tell a story early in the book of where you're swimming and he sees you. Did you guys have a pool at your house? Is that? Oh, no, that was actually a pastor. That wasn't my dad. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, I read. I read that as your dad. Even that's interesting because this pastor was saying that you you was concerned that you were sexualizing yourself. I don't know why I read that yeah. as your dad, but like, but well, you had yeah, the conversation with your pastor about sexualizing yourself, right? About 
about yeah. um, you being in the situation where you're in a swimsuit and he's like, well, if you're going to go to summer camp, the boys are going to sexualize you. You got to really be careful. Yeah. Uh, and, the way you walk, the way you talk. And yeah. Yeah. And, and do you think that your relationship with your dad, like how did that interaction play in with, with what was going on at home? Well, I, you know, I was very familiar by that time with, um, with sexual abuse and with mind games. And ironically, I think that because of my experience at home, when this pastor started saying very inappropriate things to me, I immediately went on defense because I, I, you know, I, I knew exactly what he was doing. What, was um, this your pastor? Was the pastor of your church? He was he was a pastor in our presbytery. So he had preached okay. at our church okay. before. He wasn't um he wasn't somebody I saw on a weekly basis, but I saw him fairly regularly. And um and he was the father of some of my friends. And and actually more recently, um uh several of his daughters have come forward and uh revealed that he is he was an abuser. So, you know, that was my instinct that he was um, propositioning me back when I was uh, 15 or 16, um, you know, turned out to be right on, right on, very correct. And so thankfully I was, you know, I think just by God's grace, I had the presence of mind to tell him, I'm not comfortable with this conversation. And, you know, he made some excuse about how, oh, well, you know, I'm just giving you fatherly advice. And if you don't think about all these, you know, sexual things, then, you know, how are you going to protect yourself against men? And, uh, you know, it was a conversation that honestly wouldn't have even been appropriate for my parents to have, let alone a a pastor. So um, I just kind of excused myself and said, I'm not comfortable with this and I'm going, you know, I'm going back to bed and, and I, I walked out of the room. Um, but yeah, that kind of, that experience cemented in my mind that it was dangerous to tell pastors what I was going through because when I originally approached him, I was hopeful that, you know, maybe I can uh, tell this pastor about what my dad's doing. Maybe he'll understand. And instead of listening to me, the guy actually uh, propositioned me. So that was, you know, a horrible experience and um, made it all the more difficult for me to report later on. When was the first uh, experience of, of abuse for you that you registered? Like, when did it, when did you, as you look back at the story now, like, what was the first? Oh, well, the first experience of thing, like, what age and what did it, and if you're comfortable, could you just like say what it, what it felt like or what the experience was like? like this. This is normal. You know, it, it's, it's hard and it's stressful, but it's not illegal. And so I was kind of in, I don't want, I don't know if saying that I was in denial is the right word. It's more like, this is how I grew up and I didn't know anything else. So I just thought it was normal. Well, 
once I got married, I started realizing, oh, wow, my husband treats me so much better than my dad. And um, just the stark contrast between, um, you know, being around my husband, being around a man who is interested in my ideas, who cares about my feelings, um, you know, who's interested in in being involved in my hobbies and he's encouraging of my career. Um, This was such a stark contrast to how I'd grown up, you know, with a dad who was apathetic, who was constantly demeaning, um, you know, who, who called me a piece of meat, you know, so the contrast was incredibly stark. And so I, you know, I, I kind of went through a season where I was struggling with PTSD and I just kept feeling like when I was, you know, changing my clothes or, or whatever, I, just alone in a room, I would feel like I was being watched. And so finally I prayed to God and I, I told God, I was like, look, there's, there's like a repressed memory that um, I'm sure is causing this, this sensation. And I need you to show me what it is that I don't remember and show me what it is in my past that's causing me to have these feelings. And just like that, like in a flash. I remember this time when I was very, very young and um, my dad was helping me. uh, I don't remember what it was, put my shoes on or get dressed or something. And I just remember the look in his eye and I remembered uh, being sexually molested or assaulted. And, um, and I was just stunned, you know, it happened. It just came back to me. And I remember, you you remember him touching you at that point too. Yes. Yeah. I remember like, the shoes I was wearing. I remember the blanket on my parents' bed. I remember the furniture layout in the room. And I went, but I was at the same time, it was such a strange way to remember something. Um, and so yeah, it's I, almost, it's almost as if your, your, your body waited right. until you had the space to unpack it. Like, like you exactly. didn't have the space to like, so it repressed exactly. it. Well, and, you know, it's like, it's like any childhood memory. Like, you know how sometimes you can be like, I don't know. Like I remember one time I was, I was eating fish sticks and I remembered suddenly I remember this time way back at, you know, uh, my six year old friend's birthday party way back when, and we had this conversation It's something I hadn't thought about in decades. Right. Right. But I remembered it because I was eating fish sticks and for whatever reason that brought up this memory. Well, I think the same kind of thing happens with flashbacks. You know, it's not so much a, a freak experience. You're just remembering something you haven't thought about in a very long time. It's just that those memories are incredibly traumatic. You know, it's not it's not a birthday party. It's it's something horrific. And so it's it's very traumatizing. It can make you like it can it can give you chills. It can make you want to throw up. It's very upsetting. And so, you know, I told my husband about it, obviously, and he believed me. And, um, you know, the next day I called my mom and I said, you know, I have these memories and I, you know, I didn't tell her what I'd remembered right off the bat, but I said, I remember these shoes and I described my shoes and, you know, I remember I described the blanket on her bed and I said, is this real? Like, are these, are these real things? And she was like, yeah, those are the shoes you wore when you were like two years old. And that's my bedspread back when we lived in Memphis. And that's the, the exact layout of the room. Yeah. You're remembering it correctly. And that's when I realized this was real. And, um, you know, and I told her what had happened and she believed me. And she said, you know what? I remember that day I was in the kitchen and your dad had, you know, come to me and he said, hey, if Jennifer says anything weird, just tell her that, you know, you just, I want you to know that I was just checking her for diaper rash. And she thought that it was strange that he would even need to explain that, you know, Um, 
but you know, so all those puzzle pieces kind of came together and, and it turned out that at the time she had suspected something, but she didn't know who to talk to, to get help. And, um, but yeah, so, you know, to, to answer your question, I mean, the, the initial memories I have, um, date back to when I was two years old. It's interesting too the self-defeating stories that, that this kind of trauma causes. You tell the story in the book where like you didn't do the dishes or something and your husband just doing the dishes and yeah. you're like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm just doing <laughs> And you go into this thing and he's going to leave me. I'm a bad wife. <laughs> and he wasn't, he doesn't, he didn't mind doing the dishes. He was like, oh, it's okay. I'll just do the dishes. You look tired. I'll just right. do them. Right. But the narratives, you know, like so much of the narratives that that it seems like people that have gone through these kind of traumatic things can often tell themselves, right? The stories you tell yourself that are so debilitating, right? And disorienting. Yeah. I mean, that I mean that to me, I was reading that and I was like, oh my God, this is just absolutely awful. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's hard, you know, when you grow up in a situation where like my dad, he was very violent. And so one of the things that he would do when he got angry is, you know, he'd, you know, he'd wash the dishes, but he'd end up breaking the dishes, you know, or he'd, um, he'd clear off the table, but he'd end up throwing stuff that was there on the floor, you know? So, I mean, I had never, like, it, it's actually kind of funny. I mean, in a morbid sort of way, I guess, but there were chores that I really truly believed were man chores, like taking out the trash and mowing the lawn were man chores and everything else was women's work. And so, so when my husband, you know, it's like I marry this nice godly man who's, who loves me and cares about me and wants to be involved in my life. And, and he starts mopping the floor and he starts doing the dishes. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. I, you know, I failed as a wife and you know, he, he can't possibly love me. And you know, I, I'm, I'm a failure. And, and so it, it took a long time. Um, and he and I really worked through that together. Um, a couple times, you know, I clearly remember him like one time he made dinner and he, you know, and I was, I was, he could tell I was anxious and stressed about it. And he said, look, I'm not your dad. I'm not like him. I enjoy helping. And, you know, and so, and, and we're in this together. We're going to get through this together. It's going to be okay. And, you know, just in case we have uh, listeners right now who are, you know, maybe abuse survivors or abuse victims and they're worried, you know, like, will I ever be able to be happy in a marriage? Will I ever be able to have a healthy relationship? I really want to encourage you that, yes, absolutely, you can. And actually, because I, um, my husband was able to walk through a lot of my recovery with me because he was able to help me heal from PTSD and go through that all with me. I'm not saying it was easy. You know, it was really hard. Um, but we went through that together. It was a team effort. And because of that, I think our marriage is actually a lot stronger. It, it strikes me that the hard thing about trauma is that, it, I mean, I think part of being a human being, right, is having a story. And so we have a past and we and we look to a future and our present is oriented kind of by looking back and looking forward. But it seems like when you have post-traumatic stress disorder, or these really traumatic experiences, that the past is the present, right? It, yeah. They fuse. And then there's no way to look forward because you're just caught in the feedback loop between the past and the present, which become one. And so you can't really be a storied human being anymore, right? Because you can't get past. You're the still feedback. in the story. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's very much like I liken it just to having a physical injury. You know, say for example, you know, you're in a severe car accident. Well, you know, a year, two years down the road, you may still have aches and pains. 
and you're still going to be in that place where you don't feel recovered and you know you're you're still going through physical therapy um and emotional injuries are a lot like that and so kind of thinking about it like that for me has really helped me a lot i have been able to say yes the trauma is in the past um and i'm still you know i may still be dealing with some of the pain and the repercussions of that but it's behind me and um you know, and I'm not going to repeat those patterns. And I think that another thing too that that is really makes it difficult, at least for me personally, as as a child abuse survivor, um, is that a lot of the people in your life are abusive. You know, you don't realize it, but a lot of them are. You know, whether they've um, uh, whether they've committed abuse themselves, or whether they've covered up abuse, or whether they're just in denial about what happened. You know, I've had people in my life who who saw me get thrown down the stairs. Yeah. But then later denied that I was abused. And it's just like, how do you reconcile yeah. that? You know, how do mm. you how do you wrap your head around that? Um, and how do you continue in a relationship with a person who has seen those things and who didn't intervene or who doesn't acknowledge that it was wrong? So there's there's a lot of um, disconnect and a lot of dysfunction that you know, I really had to um, cut quite a few people out of my life and um, and just kind of like really humble myself too. And, you know, there have been a couple times when, you know, I've had friends or people who I thought were my friends and Jason just told me, look, that bad person isn't, you know, I don't know what's up with them, but they're not quite normal. And I just really think, you know, you shouldn't trust them. And, you know, kind of allowing him to, uh, you know, because I, I'm not, you know, at many times in my life, I haven't been, I haven't been able to gauge what's normal, what's healthy. Um, so that's been a, that's been a real struggle um, and something I've really been growing through. Yeah. It strikes me too that if you're in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, that's a really niche religious stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. so like, it, it, it's not like being at some big generic mega church where you can just find a new big. You can't disappear church. in the crowd. No, right, everybody right. knows everybody. <laughs> These people know each other and they write blog posts and, you know, there's this, you know, the uh, Lee Irons versus this guy and this guy, like I knew, you know, yeah. Charlie, De the Denison brothers. And I, I mean, I know these, I know some of these people, yeah. right? I mean, I've oh, yeah. interacted with some. Yeah. So is, is that a challenge because you like, are, are you still in that religious subculture? Have you, have you had to move on to a different one or because, um, it, because it strikes me that's a big feedback loop, right? Like it is. Yeah. I, I've actually, you know, and this is probably going to sound really opportunity to speak at the Caring Well Conference, which is put on by the ERLC, which of course is an SBC organization. And um, that's, the SBC... That's Southern Baptist. For, right, for a exactly. Southern Baptist. Yes, exactly. thing from Brooklyn, New York, or LA, that's <laughs> Southern Baptist. Event. So, you know, and they've been in the news a lot, you know, unfortunately, because there has been a lot of sexual abuse in, in some of the churches. And so, um, you know, but but kind of being involved in 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 that event and then getting to know those people and then kind of working with the ERLC, um, it kind of gave me a, a sort of like it kind of gave me a I don't know what I don't even know how to explain this, but just gave me a bigger picture of of what the body of Christ is, what the church is. You know, to be able to get out of, as you called it, my little niche of the OPC and and meet new people and and talk to different, you know, Christians from different denominations. And, you know, I experienced a lot of that, too, um, also while writing my book. 
because um, obviously my uh, my publisher, The Good Book, is based in uh, London, or at least my editor is. And so they don't have the OPC over in London, you know. So um, uh, just being able to, um, you know, interact, especially like via Twitter with lots of different kinds of Christians, whether it be Methodist, Lutheran, Baptist, Catholic, I mean, anybody. And, you know, finding, finding the, like, Obviously, there's doctrinal differences, but seeing that there's a commonality, I think, among genuine Christians of love. You know, Jesus says, you know, you will know by this, they will know that you are my disciples by your love. And and so that's something that I've been really for the last couple of years been uh, just absorbing, you know, emotionally and spiritually. It's just, you know, Jesus loved, loves people. He took care of people. He he cared about the widow, the orphan, the the beat up guy on the side of the street, um, the leper, the outcast. Um, he cared about these people and he befriended them. And so, kind of the way I've come to view um, the body of Christ of late is not you know this denomination or that denomination or or what theology do you you know or doctrinal beliefs do you follow, but but much more like, okay, well, well, how are you loving people? Mm-hmm. And when I see that love, then I know, okay, this is my brother or sister in Christ, you know? So thinking about it that way, I think has also insulated me from um, a lot of church related trauma, because obviously I have, you know, I've been abused by a pastor and, you know, my, my dad was, you know, supposedly a Christian. Um, so I've experienced my share of church abuse and spiritual abuse. Um, but being able to, in my mind, separate, well, these people may have said they were a Christian. They may have said they cared about me, that they may have said that they were my dad or my pastor or, or what have you, but they didn't love. And you see, that's, that's an incremental ingredient in any good relationship, in any Christian relationship, in any healthy relationship. Um, if there's no love, it's not real. And so, you know, that differentiating that in my life, I think, has helped me kind of uh, strengthen my relationship with God, even though I've, you know, I've gone through my, my, my valleys and my down spots, but um, helped me work through a lot of things. One of the most helpful parts of the book I found personally was you have a section where you talk about what grace is. And it's hard because every human being on some level is a victim and a victimizer, right? Like everyone has been hurt by people and everyone has hurt people to different degrees. Like this doesn't make everyone abuse or anything, but there are there, but these things, these lines can get messy and it can be hard to like draw distinctions, but you do a really good job of talking about like what forgiveness is and what reconciliation is. Now you can, you can have a sort of forgiveness for somebody that doesn't preclude accountability or, or sticking up for your own rights or yeah. sticking up and, and how, and also you talk about how their response to your own self-protection is interesting, right? Like if they're supportive of, if they've seen like, you know, like, like most of the time, if, if you're, if you you kind of say, if you're a graced person, uh-huh. you're much more open to, um, needing grace and seeing your faults. And it's almost like what grace does is opens you up to be able to say, I was wrong. Right. And exactly. and, 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 and then the further you are from grace, the more you're caught up in self-justification, right. And self-defense and these things. And you have this very interesting catalog, right. Of like, and you even talk about your dad, like, Hey, look, uh-huh. like there's a, 
there's a kind of forgiveness that you have for him, but you're not reconciled, you know, right. like, you know, that, that, that's, but that's, it's interesting though, because that is a really honest and powerful statement to say, like you, you could forgive somebody and not be reconciled and yeah, self-protect all at the same time. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's funny. Um, one of my friends, um, once told me, um, you know, I, I kept, I, I was struggling with this idea with, uh, with people telling me, oh, you need to, you need to be reconciled, um, you know, with your dad, you need to be reconciled with, you know, all these people who have hurt you. And she said, look, Jen, God's not even reconciled with everybody, not even God. Um, there are people who, you know, who hate God and they choose to hate God and, um, and, and they're not reconciled with God. And so, you know, for, for someone to say you have to reconcile with this person or you have to forgive this person, basically they're telling you to be more merciful than God. They're telling you to be more holy and more loving and more forgiving than God. She's like, how can anybody expect that of you? And, you know, and it's really true. There, there's a place where you're going to get with certain people, particularly abusers, where they're not sorry, they're not changing their behavior. So for our listeners, Jen, <laughs> Jen's adorable daughter just came in and handed her something. This is a kite, and I am tying. She's very cute. <laughs> Thank you. She's got chocolate all over her face, so I'm not sure what's going on while we're interviewing. Maybe, hey. Maybe go take it to daddy. Oh my goodness. But anyway, so, so yeah, we come to a place, you know, with, with every, with, with abusers. Okay, baby, take this out. Close, close door behind you. Thank you. Don't interrupt me again, please. I love you. Close the door. Close the door, Gwen. Oh boy. Sorry about that. Um, Can you edit that? No, we're going to leave it in. This is fantastic. No, there's no editing. We're not editing your story. Like this is great. This is raw vulnerability. Yes, I just tied a toy fish to a cat to a kite, and she's going to go outside and she's going to see if the kite will fly with the toy fish attached. And when it doesn't, she's going to come back crying. So yeah. So um, her daddy can take care of that. You you Um, tell us. You tell a story. As I I recall reading your book, like it seems like your dad almost, it was like a suicide attempt. He cut his own arm to say like, I love you this much. And like to say like, I mean, it it was around a birthday, your sister's birthday or something. And he, and he cuts his arms and is, I mean, it's this awful, awful thing. (laughs) Yeah, it it was terrible. Um, I, yeah, it was. That was a bizarre experience. So my dad had um, frequently when I was growing up, he would, um, you know, threaten to shoot our family or shoot himself if anybody ever, if I ever left him or if I ever, you know, quote, betrayed him, quote, you know, obviously getting help or reporting abuse is not betraying anybody. It's actually a loving thing to do because you're holding them accountable and you're, um, you're refusing to allow them to, uh, to continue destroying their souls with that, with that wickedness. So yeah, it's you're, actually, letting, you're letting love in the whole room. Love exactly. and light. 
Exactly. You're, you're making them, you know, at least doing the best, doing your best to make them take responsibility and change. Um, and that is a very loving thing to do. But yeah, so my dad um, had invited one of my sisters, I guess, to uh, to go out to coffee or something like that. And this was after my story, you know, had hit the fan. Everybody knew that he was an abuser, but for whatever reason, he was still living at home. I was married by this time, so I was not there. Um, but he had, um, he broke a, a glass on the table and he smashed it on the table so hard that there were like chunks of glass sticking out of the wood. And he used the shards of glass to stab his arms and said, with every stab, this is how much I love you. This is how much I love you. And um, keep in mind, this guy is a PhD in biology. So if he wanted to actually do damage to himself, he he would have done it. Um, the police were called and they basically interpreted this as an abusive scare tactic. He was, you know, trying to traumatize my my mom and my sisters so that they would not try to leave him. And so they would do what he wanted. And, um, you know, it's what a work thing to do. Right. So, um, but it, yeah, so it was, I mean, on the one hand, I think it was supposed to look like a suicide attempt, but at the same time, I don't think it was genuine. I think it was very much a psychological uh, manipulative thing that he did. What's your dad doing now? Do you know? I do not. He's, he's kind of in the biology medical field. Is so. he still teaching or? No, I, I just know that he has kind of an office job now. And is he still connected to a religious community or not? Like He is. He is. Yeah. He's not in the OPC. He's actually in the uh, PCA, I believe, right now. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he's, yeah. Do you think he's honest about what, what's going on? Like. Oh, no. Well, I mean, um, no, I don't. I don't. I, I'm not sure that he's even honest with himself. I don't know. Um, you know, I've been lied to so many times by him that it's hard to know what's even real and what's, uh, what, what's genuine from him anymore. Um, but I haven't, I haven't spoken to him in over a decade. So, yeah. Jen- Jennifer, you've written a great book, not forsaken. And, and for anybody that, you know, wherever they are on the spectrum of the dark <laughs> night of the soul and the tragic nature of the human condition, I think it, it's a, it's a wonderful read and I really appreciate you writing it with vulnerability and grace and candor. And, and thanks so much for spending a few minutes talking with me about it. I mean, I'm really grateful for the experience. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, I hope my hope and prayer with the book, you know, is just to, um, you know, to kind of outline the process of my recovery, you know, spiritually speaking, um, psychologically speaking, um, what it took to for me to be able to go back to church, for me able to be able to have a happy marriage and get to that place. Um, and, you know, I, I originally wrote the, the book as a series of letters to my husband to kind of help him under, you know, understand where I was coming from. And I, I'm really hopeful and really excited to hear back from readers who have said that, you know, their spouse or their pastor read it and has come to understand them better and it's strengthened their marriage or it's strengthened their friendship or their, you know, their, it's enabled their pastor to encourage them. And to me, that, that really makes it worthwhile to see God working through um, my dad's sin. You know, it's like in uh, Genesis fifty twenty when Joseph said to his abusive brothers, you know, you intended evil against me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many 
many lives. And I, I really, you know, hope and pray that it encourages people and and equips, you know, even if, you know, you weren't abused yourself, just equips you to to encourage people who have gone through this because there's it's so horribly common. Jennifer, thanks again and, and be well in your journeys. Thank you so much, Scott. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.